Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. I recap the biggest stories of the year in Hamilton with Mayor Andrea Horvath. Also, intel on Canada's aging workforce. The Ticats make some changes, revealing the ZEV mandate, teddy bears that comfort kids, and celebrating some of the luckiest Canadians. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath joining me in studio here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Thank you very much for coming in. Absolutely my pleasure. I haven't been here in a while. It's, it's <laughs> been a few years. Yes, that's okay. We, uh, we always, always uh, welcome you back and the doors are always open. I, I wanted to recap 2023, maybe look a little bit ahead to 2024. When it comes to 2023, was there a bigger story than housing and homelessness in the city? I don't think so. And it's a story, um, a not very good story that's mm-hmm. happening around the country and around around the continent. I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, and we just have to have the resources necessary to support people to be successfully housed, as well as make sure we can get the housing built. And so we're working on both of those things. The other orders of government uh, need, to, need to show up, though, and um, we're working on that, too. I know there isn't a silver bullet or a magic bullet, um, but are we getting close to at least solving a little bit of the problem? Well, the, we we are uh, certainly in a position where we're putting together uh, resources to partner with the not-for-profit sector. We know that Hamilton is home, which is a, a collective of providers. Uh, they are, they're ready to build, and so we are trying to find the ways not only to, to, to provide some assistance capital-wise, but also to encourage the provincial government to, uh, to partner with us as well. We also have the asylum seekers uh, and uh, refugees, and so we're working with the federal government to try to get them to uh, help bring more resources to support those folks. There was a recent story about uh, perhaps utilizing some vacant properties, parking lots in the city to mm-hmm. to help you know push this ball down the road. Um, how close are we to that? Well, the uh, the, the decision got pushed to next uh, next year, March. Um, you know, we have to start using our properties as leverage. A lot of times the not-for-profit sector will say they're putting applications into the feds or the province and they are not as successful if there's no evidence that the city is also in that partnership. And so we have something called the Housing Secretariat, uh, which is now this uh, umbrella group of uh, of people who are dedicated to the housing challenges in the city. Um, before, it was just done off of somebody's the side of somebody's desk. So we've brought some focus. Uh, we have a roadmap called the Housing um, uh, sus- uh, Investment and Sustainability Roadmap. And so we are, we're working really hard because it's not just something that um, is a one-off. We need to put the focus, uh, we need to put the resources, and we need to do the uh, advocacy with the other levels of government. And we're doing all those things. The Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters had uh, what I thought was a pretty good idea. The execution, not so much in terms of building these tiny shelters in a in a park or in the community. Is that still kind of a possibility for 2024? Well, unfortunately, we ended up with a situation that, as you said, it, it, just, it didn't work out. And um, the folks who were kind of from the community, the Hats people, if you want to call them that, uh, they. Um, I mean, it, it, the ball's in their court. I don't know how active they are right now, uh, but certainly, if we can find an alternative to the one that was uh, uh, turned down in the north end, then then we certainly will. But it it really was their idea, their baby, and uh, they brought it forward. We tried to you know find a, a place that made sense, and then things, as you know, didn't work out. And so, if they want to bring something further uh, to us, then absolutely, we're all ears. In terms of the budget, we are seeing uh, potentially a 14% 
uh, property tax hike for 2024. Um, do you have some uh, some Christmas joy that you can share with our <laughs> listeners that that won't be the case? <laughs> well, I, I, I can guarantee you it won't be 14%, okay. and it won't be more than 14%. <laughs> uh, it's a tough budget year. There's no doubt about it. There's a lot of pressure that, uh, uh, that we're feeling as a city, but families are feeling that pressure too. I mean, whether it's inflation, whether it's the cost of labor, the cost of uh, of uh, of you know of goods. I mean, it's everything is really really expensive right now, uh, and we have some major crises as we were just talking about housing and homelessness being one of them uh, that we need to address as a city, and so. You, you can't do those things without resources. And we also have significant pressure from the provincial government yeah. downloading with the Bill 23 and lack of resources for uh, development charges and all kinds of other things. And so many municipalities, and ours included, we're going to be indicating, uh, you know, what it is th- that that pressure looks like on our tax bills so that people know, here's what, here's what Hamilton City Council bill would look like but now we have this extra pressure uh and this is you know what the provincial government decisions have done to our taxes other municipalities have done the same so i don't blame hamilton for following suit because you know if you're listing uh, by you know line item of this is what you're paying for in hamilton and this is what is being downloaded by the province i think people really want to see that absolutely it's it's uh, it's transparency and it's also helps uh, to explain to people and we always use that term downloading downloading mm-hmm. or provincial pressures but you know let, let's ha- have a look at what that actually is. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Andrea Orvath joining us in studio on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. we got a couple minutes left and I do want to ask you about uploading because this is relatively new. We've just talked about downloading and for years the provincial government has downloaded onto municipalities uploading things like the link in the Red Hill for example. Um, is, is that a possibility? Well, uh, we had a motion at council, last council meeting. Uh, we know that this is something that was successfully done in Toronto. So the uh, Don Valley Parkway and the Gardener, uh, two roadways that actually connect the 400 series highways. Well, that's what the link does and the and the Red Hill Creek Expressway. We, we see all kinds of trucks, all kinds of through traffic, not necessarily starting in Hamilton or ending in Hamilton. Um, and, and so if if the logic is that those roadways belong with the provincial government uh, in Toronto, then the same logic should apply here. So we've uh, we've passed the motion. We're we're going to start lobbying the uh, Minister of Transportation. Uh, maybe he's listening right now, <laughs> um, uh, but he does know that um, this is something that's coming forward. There was a trade-off in Toronto in which the province also got Ontario Place. Are you expecting the provincial government to say, what do you got? Well, in fact, the vast majority of Ontario Place is owned by the province of Ontario. Mm-hmm. There's a small parcel that's owned by the city of Toronto, but it was more, I think, the um, the pushback that they didn't want to they didn't want to see the city of Toronto officially pushing back so hard on the Ontario Place uh, situation. Uh, having said that, I, I I just I don't think that those highways should have been downloaded in the first place, and they were. Uh, we of course we just had the results of the inquiry uh, that came that talked about some of the challenges of that roadway. You know, really historically, uh, I think it's because those kinds of pieces of big infrastructure don't belong at the Municipal Order of Government. So we're going to keep pushing for that. i got about 30 seconds for a final message to our listeners as they uh, get set for the holiday season. Uh, It's been a tough year for a lot of folks, and um, I'm hoping people have a really wonderful holiday season, lots of joy, lots of love, uh, lots of camaraderie. uh, And uh, 2024, around the corner, it's going to be a great year. I hope so. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. That's uh, Mayor Andrea Horvath joining us here in studio on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about work because Canada's workforce is getting older and it's not a good sign for 10, 15 years 
down the road. Because when we look at new data from Stats Canada, it suggests our country's senior population is growing over the next few decades and will likely be more Canadians leaving the workforce than entering it. And last month, it found that roughly 2.7 million Canadians between the ages of 15 and 24 said that they were employed. That compares to more than 4.4 million people aged 55 plus who had a job. So you can see in 10, 12, 15 years from now, those 55 plus crowd now will be putting their feet up and retired. At least that's the dream. Dr. Ian Lee is an associate professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Lee, good morning. Good morning, Rick. This does not sound good for the labor force in 10 to 15 years from now. It's actually going to hit far before then. Um, The shortages uh, are already in the Canadian economy as we speak. When one Googles Stats Canada job vacancies in Canada 2023, you come up with a number somewhere around 800,000 people. These are job shortages. In other words, where the companies or the employers cannot find people to fill the jobs. And it's across the economy. It's not just nurses, much as important as nurses are. It's not just doctors, important as doctors are. Um, in the construction industry, the shortage of plumbers, drywall, pipe fitters, you name it. Uh, it's going on across the economy. And it's only going to get worse. Uh, this is something that's not unique to Canada. It's going on in uh, all the Western countries, U.S., uh, Europe. It's much worse in Europe, by the way. Uh, we mitigate these law, uh, shortages with immigration, although it does not eliminate them. A lot of people think, oh, you just bring in more immigration and you'll just solve the problem. But it doesn't. It, it contributes to reducing the shortages in the labor market, but there, we can talk about that in a moment, what, what the problems are there. Uh, but this has been studied, this issue of aging and the impact on the economy has been studied by Finance Canada, Stats Canada, the World Bank, the IMF, the OECD, you name it. Just about everybody has studied this. And there's a consensus. And one consensus, one, one of the conclusions is that it's going to lead to a slowing of GDP. Now, there's lots of people who say, that's, that's okay, we're really rich, and who cares about GDP? I hear this a lot, by the way. Hmm. I want to remind everybody, GDP is the totality of all the wages and all the salaries and all the incomes of all the people in one country. So GDP is just a proxy for your salary or your income. Now, let's say, is your salary unimportant? I say that to my students, because they come in and they say, some professor says, you know, GDP is unimportant. I said, is your, your income to go to school, is that unimportant? <laughs> I think it's important. That's how you buy your groceries. That's how you buy stuff, is with your income. Well, all the incomes of all of us added up is GDP. So the GDP is going to be slowing uh, for the literally the next 20, 30 years. This has been documented by many, many uh, analysts, including, as I said, the IMF, the OECD, Finance Canada. And what that means is not only will our average incomes be uh, not as growing anywhere near as rapidly, but it means that the money flowing into governments because our system, the Canadian system, and I've looked at it, it's very transparent, anybody can look at the numbers, is very sensitive to growth. When GDP is growing, booming, money just gushes in to the federal and provincial governments. They're just afloat in money. But when GDP collapses and goes down to 1% or 2%, the revenues flowing into the government to pay for our beloved health care system and income support programs and education system drops very dramatically. And that's what we're seeing right now, by the way. And so the aging of the society is a very, very, uh, it's going to have, IMF said it's going to be the biggest crisis of the 21st century, Mm -hmm. much bigger 
they said, than the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis. So are we at a, it sounds like, are we at a point of no return in terms of turning the tide? No. No, I said something, and, and I know some people are going to get very angry at what I'm about to say, so I'm giving you a trigger warning, okay? <laughs> the problem with immigration, and I support immigration very strongly, is people say, well, you just bring in a whole bunch more immigrants, and then you solve the aging problem. Well, the problem, the problem, if I could put it that way, is, is, is that we typically recruit immigrants that have the same demographic profile of the Canadian population. So a certain percentage are under uh, 18, a certain percentage between 20 and 30, a certain percentage 30 to 40, 40 to 50, and so forth. In other words, if all we're doing is reproducing the demographic profile, then you're not changing the average age. My uh, suggestion, and I know it's radical, is to say, look, we only want immigrants under the age of 35. We want only immigrants. I say to my students, there's too many of me. I'm a boomer. There's too many of me. And there's not enough of you, young people. We need many, many, many millions more young people. We don't need millions more people that are 55 or 60 or 65. Some older people listening to this program may get very angry at me. That's okay. <laughs> I'm over 65. And I've studied these numbers very closely. And we need a lot more young people. Yeah. And, and, a, and a lot more young people. Issue. And a lot more young people in the employment needs that are, as you mentioned, vacant. You know, the skilled trades, the nurses, the doctors. We need exactly. many more of them. And, and the other thing, very quickly, before I run out of time, Rick, we need. And this has been discussed, I assure you, because I've talked to public servants, both federally and provincially. They're just tearing out their hair, trying to do, uh, it's called labor force um, um, uh, targeting. And trying to, it may sound real simple, uh, try and get data on where are the shortages precisely. But it is devilishly complicated, um, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how many are we short of plumbers? Are we short of them in PEI, or are we short of them in eastern Ontario, or in Hamilton, and so on and so forth. And then you multiply that by all the incredible number of occupations across the country in a large complex economy and the measurement problem becomes daunting i didn't say it's impossible it but it's very difficult and they've got to do a better job of labor market forecasting federal and provincial in order to then say to immigration canada okay these are the job people these are the the profiles the job profiles of people we need to bring in not just bring in people indiscriminately we should be targeting. If we need plumbers, well, then let's target immigrants who are, have their plumbing designation, and so on. You get the idea. So we're going to have to do a much better job targeting not only age, but also the skill sets to reflect the needs of the Canadian society and these huge shortages that are only going to get worse as we go forward over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Makes a lot of sense, Dr. Lee. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, providing your insight to our listeners this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Ian Lee is an associate professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Levi Mitchell going for it now to Tim White. It's a touchdown. Tim White. Well, as you know, the Tiger Cats hosted an epic Grey Cup in November, but they did not play in that big game. Montreal ended up beating Winnipeg in one of the most entertaining Grey Cups in recent memory. Will the 2020 Four edition of the Tie Cats finally ends the CFL's longest active championship drought in the league. I'm sure they're sick of hearing about it. We're sick of talking about it. We just want to have a fun old time with the championship trophy. Orlando Steinauer is now the president of football operations with the Hamilton Tiger Cats and joins us now on GMH. Orlando, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning, Rick. How are we doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining me today. Big Absolutely. front office changes in the offseason to start. You're now at the top of the food chain when it comes to football ops. I mean, you were there already, but now you have Scott Milanovic as the new head coach. At what point after the season came to an end did this scenario make the most sense going forward? Well, I think, like I mentioned, Rick, after in, in the exit press interview, that you're always reflecting and trying to find ways to get better. And sometimes you have to look at, you know, this is no different than what we do every year, meaning uh, how can you use your personnel best, uh, be it on the field, uh, be it in the office, in the personnel department, uh, and you're moving on. So when you go through um, a deep dive and you unpack whatever you need to unpack, uh, you find out what's available to you and and you make decisions on what you think might be best going forward. So it was, um, you know, through an extensive process and lots of thought. It wasn't a knee-jerk decision or anything like that. It was just uh, a collective thing that we thought this might be a direction we needed to head. I, I need both my hands and both my feet to count how many times on the fifth quarter our Ticats postgame show after each and every Ticats game in which fans would say, you know what, Coach O just has to focus on one thing. Now that you're focused on one thing, and it's obviously a pretty big thing, do you think your job's going to be easier or tougher? Um, <clears throat> we'll see. Uh, I think that uh, I was, you know, this afforded this opportunity by by being a coach. And being on the field and, um, you know, as far as game day rosters and those types of things, those decisions will will ultimately be, um, you know, a collective still, but it'll be off my plate um, and those type of things. I will be uh, with another team of sorts. Uh, I look at it as more of a like a DB group, maybe a defensive coordinator role where, um, you know, I'm not in front of the team every single day where you have to prepare meetings and, you know, I really haven't had a quote unquote day off as a player uh, or a coach in season in like 20 years. And it's not even about days off. It's about uh, being able to focus. But I think um, I was surrounded by such great people that the roles are, you know, everybody can have an opinion and the optics of it. Um, the I was surrounded by such great people. That was when I took on the president's role, Rick. Uh, I thought it, I only took it on because of the people I was able to surround myself with. So it's, it wasn't like I was focused completely on, you know, off the field stuff. Obviously at practice and during games, I was a, uh, was a coach first. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Orlando Steinauer, the president of football operations with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. How do you think Coach Milanovic is going to differ from Coach O? Oh, like it, it doesn't matter who would follow me. Uh, they're going to bring their own style, their own personality. Um, I know internally how it'll be different, and he's, you know, I would, I would, don't want to him to resemble me in any way. What I, my goal was when I came here was to always leave it in better shape than I should. I showed up and I saw it right, and or as the as the saying goes, then you found it. But I didn't feel like it was terrible when I got here. I felt like I was adding value to value. And I'm talking about is the DC. And as you move forward, you know, I wanted to leave this thing uh, better, the foundation super strong that you could come in and implement whatever you needed to implement. But the foundation, the energy, the environment, the culture uh, was already set so that whoever uh, came on board would be able to springboard and, and really slingshot this thing forward.
You've already re-signed, and you have 30-plus free agents. You've re-signed a couple of big ones in Stavros Katsantonis and Brandon Revenberg. Um, I know there's fan favorites out there as well, whether it's uh, Simone Lawrence, Tim White. If if the math makes sense, do you want to bring those guys back as well? Yep. It's long off season, Rick. It's, <laughs> it's a long off season, buddy. Can't, um, can't we do everything one, before one at Christmas? A time. One at a time. Can't we do everything before Christmas? One, that wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? It's this is definitely the busiest time of year. It, it is. I mean, with all the one year co- uh, contracts with the players, you know, you're going to have this amount of free agents. Um, you know, I think our, you know, Ed's done a great job in the personnel department of securing two year deals when when we can. But also those are tough to come by. And then you're also trying to field a staff and staffs for the most part are on one year contracts. And so December proves to be a extremely busy month. Absolutely. Speaking of Christmas, do you got your shopping done? No, nah, nah, close. I'm close, though. All right. Well, you're amongst the majority in our online poll question today of (laughs) people finishing their Christmas shopping. I know you got lots of shopping to do in terms of free agents when that opens and re-signing guys as well. Really appreciate the Mm -hmm. time. Merry Christmas. Best of the holidays. And we'll chat with you in the new year. Awesome. Thanks, Rick. Have a great day and happy holidays to you and everybody there. Thank you very much. Orlando Steinauer, president of the football operations of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, has some work to do. 30 plus free agents. And that's really not abnormal. You look across the league, and each team has about 20, 25, 30, 35 plus free agents. It's just the nature of the beast in the Canadian Football League. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. StatsCan says one in eight new vehicles sold in this country is electric or plug in hybrid. And that's led by sales in BC and Quebec, where more than 20% of new vehicles in those provinces are EVs or plug-in hybrids. Federal government tomorrow is expected to announce that all new vehicles sold in Canada must have zero emissions by 2035. They're known as ZEVs or zero emission vehicles. 2035 is going to be here before we know it. Is that too soon or are we on the right track? David Adams is the president and CEO of Global Automakers Canada and joins us here on GMH. David, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thanks for having me, Rick. What do you make of the government's plan? Well, this is something that the government has been talking about for a long time. Um, Tomorrow, the government will actually finalize its uh, zero-emission vehicle standard, which, as you noted, will require all vehicles to be 100% zero-emission by 2035. There will also be an interim target of uh, 60%, at least 60% by 2030, and the regulation will start in 2026 with 20% of vehicles being zero-emission vehicles by 2026. Uh, so we're we're kind of already there, almost there, with that 20% threshold uh, led by BC and Quebec. But when it comes right. to when it comes to mandating this, is this a good idea? Well, from our perspective, we believe that the approach the government should be taking and has always taken in the past is to set a performance target for manufacturers. So what that means is set an emissions reduction goal and let the manufacturers figure out the best way to achieve that target. That allows manufacturers with different suites of technology to apply that technology in the way that they see fit to reach the target. What the mandate does is really specify one particular technology, uh, EVs, to uh, to meet that target. So um, it's prescribing essentially how manufacturers need to meet that target, and different manufacturers are in 
different uh, spaces, I guess, in terms of the electrification of their fleet. And I, one thing we do need to be clear about is that the vehicle manufacturers are all uh, moving towards the decarbonization of their fleets, and we support the overall goal of net zero emissions reduction by 2050. There are EV sales mandates in, I think it's 15 or 17 U.S. states. Uh, the U.K. has one, South Korea, right. China. How is it going there? Well, I think it's too early to tell in uh, in the other jurisdictions, perhaps with the exception of California. Uh, UK just introduced their mandate, which will come into effect uh, next year. Um, but, you know, I, I think if you look at California as an example, uh, California's had a mandate for, I think, a couple of decades now, and they've had to revise their targets uh, numerous times um, because the targets that they sent have not been achievable. So it will remain to be seen whether or not the targets that have been set under the federal government standard will be achievable here. We're talking about zero emission vehicles and a new target date or a deadline mandate by 2035 to have all new vehicles sold in this country be a zero emission vehicle. And we're talking with David Adams, the president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada. What about the supply of EVs right now? You go to any you know lot in any city and it's almost a you know a, a 50 to 1 kind of ratio in terms of gas-powered vehicles uh, in comparison to EVs. Is that is that dynamic going to change in the next few years? Well, I think that's what the government is hoping this mandate is going to achieve. But I think the reality is, is that, you know, we've gone from basically in 2010 when there were three electric vehicles available in Canada, more than 70 models available in Canada right now. And the expectation is that number will be north of 100 in, within a couple of years. There'll be lots of choice for consumers. Um, The whole industry, as you probably know, has been inventory constrained for the last number of years through different supply chain shocks. That's all starting to get rectified now. But I think, you know, what you'll see is, uh, you know, the electric vehicles will be uh, fairly plentiful on dealers' lots in a very short order if they're not already there. Is that lack of supply or maybe lack of belief in the technology the reason why people aren't going to EVs right now? Well, I think any survey uh, has pointed out that the two critical factors uh, for consideration by consumers are, one, the price of the vehicles. There's still an average uh, cost differential of about $14,000, higher in some segments, lower in other segments. And the other reality is is that they're concerned about the infrastructure. So it's not so much about, uh, you know, whether... uh, they've got enough range in their battery, but it's concerned about whether or not they'll be able to charge their vehicle when and where they need to, to be able to use their electric vehicle in the same fashion as they've been able to use their, uh, you know, the regular internal combustion engine vehicle. Yeah, we need a lot more charging stations, and I'm sure the technology, hopefully, knock on wood, by 2035 is going to be uh, much more robust. David, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. No problem. Thank you, Rick. David Adams is the president and CEO of Global Automakers of Canada. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. More big donations rolling in for the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Thank you to Fun and Recreational Hockey League at Spring Valley Arena in Ancaster, the FRHL continuing the legacy of giving back initiated long ago by Sean Lawson. Now, Sean was an FRHL player, executive member, and friend initiated this first toy drive back in 2014. And when Sean started the toy drive, he planned on making it an annual event. 
Unfortunately, Sean was unable to continue after he suddenly passed away in February of 2015. But each and every year, the FRHL endeavors to keep Sean's dream alive that no child goes without a Christmas. And this year marks the FRHL's 10th annual community support event for children and families at Christmas. And so the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope and Children's Fund is thanking the Fun and Recreational Hockey League for their generous donation of $2,500 this year. Thank you so much. And that brings us to an amazing organization that benefits from these type of fundraising initiatives. And today we're highlighting Comfort Bears. Joining us is the founder of Comfort Bears, Lena Basford. Lena, good morning. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? Fantastic. How did Comfort Bears start? Well, Rick, I was about to retire. I'm actually the founder uh, of the Food for Kids program. And uh, after uh, eight years, I was about to retire. And I heard about this amazing initiative that was uh, operating out west. And when I checked out with some of our first responders, I found that um, comfort bears, little uh, uh, cuddly teddy bears, uh, were provided um, if they were available. And uh, if they weren't, then children did not receive them. So I started the program. And Comfort Bears is a program that provides uh, new and unused teddy bears uh, to children who are terminally ill, uh, children who have a lifelong uh, illness, or children who are experiencing severe trauma. And uh, we develop partnerships within the community with first responders, hospitals, hospices, community organizations who work with children that fit this criteria. And we uh, provide the bears uh, to enable them to have a supply of teddy bears to give to children uh, who are sometimes facing the darkest days of their young lives. Might seem like a small gesture, but these teddy bears, I mean, there's a purpose behind these. There is a purpose behind them. And, you know, we often, uh, you know, say to individuals uh, that ask about our program, you know, it's just a teddy bear. But for the child that's receiving this teddy bear, it it virtually is a lifeline, you know, and I often, uh, you know, will will use the example of, you know, a child who uh, is in a severe car accident or going through a trauma and around them is all this chaos and, you know, things going on and police and first responders. And there's this little person who's just sitting there, you know, un unsure of exactly what's going on at that moment. When they're provided with that teddy bear, it gives them something to hold on to. It provides a sense of comfort at, at as a tool that a child can understand. And we're told by, you know, so many of the organizations that we work with that at that moment, that teddy bear was exactly what that child needed to help them go through, you know, whatever uh, the, you know, the trauma or the illness uh, was that they were going through at that moment. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Lena Basford from Comfort Bears. You can find them online, comfortbears.ca. You mentioned a few organizations that you deliver these bears to, and I was on the website earlier this morning, and there's nearly 40 of them on the list. That's impressive. Well, you know, it is impressive. And, uh, you know, I have to thank the community for coming forward. And I have to thank organizations like yours, Rick, that, 
you know, step up to provide funds to programs like Comfort Bears so that it enables us to be able to give these bears to the children. Um, we start when we started Comfort Bears, it was our hope to um, establish, uh, you know, four or five partnerships and give out 500 bears. Uh, here we are two years and a bit later and we've established 38 community partnerships. And uh, unbelievably, we have uh, been able to give out 5,600 bears to children in need. And there really is um, a clear criteria of providing these bears. And, uh, you know, we had a, a young 11-year-old girl who was trafficked by her own father. Uh, we had a young boy uh, who's um, you know, a uh, younger sister had passed away after she inadvertently uh, drank some poisonous liquid. These are situations that happen every day. And we're also sheltered from the tragedies that children and families face. To be able to provide a teddy bear to comfort a child is an absolutely small gesture um, of the community. And we, you know, we're 100% volunteers. We have no paid staff. Um, and to be able to provide these bears uh, to the child, we often say it's a gift of love from the community to that child. And it's a very important uh, part of their journey. Those are really um, heartbreaking stories that you relayed to us. And uh, our thoughts go to the families of those uh, two children. And uh, I'm sure those, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the families that you help. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about 5,600 children that we provided those bears to, everyone has a story. And uh, there was a, a young girl um, at one of the hospitals, and we worked with probably a dozen different hospitals throughout Ontario. And uh, she uh, was diagnosed with a terminal cancer. And the nurse was coming into her room uh, to provide some care to her. And she stopped at the door because she heard the child talking. And there's this little girl. She was about eight years of age. And she's comforting her comfort bear. And she's saying to the, you know, to the bear, it's going to be okay. You know, we're going to get through this together. And the nurse said that it was one of the most profound experiences that she had as a nurse. You know, this child who didn't have long to live was so caring and so loving. And she was, you know, demonstrating this love, you know, by comforting her comfort bear. And, you know, we do. We have thousands of stories right now of remarkable children and remarkable uh, families who, in the face of adversity, um, you know, really, really come through. And we're honored to be a part of uh, of this journey with them. You can make a donation online at comfortbears.ca or at 900CHML and uh, give to the Children's Fund. Lena, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for doing what you do and uh, good luck down the road. Thank you so much and thank you for your support. Lena Bassford is with Comfort Bears. Again, online, comfortbears.ca, a tremendous program. You can also, uh, apart from going to the website, 900CHML.com, donate to the Christmas Tree of Hope campaign and the 900CHML Children's Fund by picking up your cell phone and texting the word donate to 30333. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. Hear about the latest lotto jackpot winner. His name is Noel Patricio of Toronto. Uh, he ended up winning $68 million in the gold ball jackpot. That's a lot of donuts. It's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of money in the bank account. But Noel says he plans to keep on working 
in housekeeping. Says he loves his job and uh, wouldn't have any other way. Please, let me introduce you to Noel Patricio of Toronto, our $68 million winner. Come on, Noel. So I see in TV, somebody won in Toronto. So my ticket is in my pocket. So I check and then it says 68,000. And then I call my sister. I said, I win a lotto, 68,000. He asked me, how many zero? And she's, I said, six zero. No, that's 68 million. My mind is flying, flying the time. Maybe my sisters are stopped, they're already <laughs> going to stop their work. But for me, I'm still going to work. I love my passion, I love my routine, so I need to keep my job. That's pretty wild. He plans to renovate his current house. He wants to take his sisters on a vacation to Italy, which that sounds phenomenal. He also wants to see Rafael Nadal play live. He's a big tennis fan. And he also plans to get season's tickets for the Toronto Raptors. And this is a great story because Patricio said he came to Canada with one suitcase and just a few bucks. And now he has $68 million in the bank. Well, that's just uh, one of a number of really amazing lottery-related stories in 2023. You will remember 18-year-old Juliette L'Amour of Sault Ste. Marie. She became the youngest Canadian in history to win a massive lottery jackpot. Her grandfather suggested, you know what, you're celebrating your 18th birthday. Go out and buy a lottery ticket, and just for fun. So this college student buys a lottery ticket, her first ever ticket. And she wins $48 million. Her father is a financial planner. They plan to invest the majority of the money while she studies to become a doctor. That is a cool story. Aaron Parsons was buying ingredients at a store because his girlfriend was craving cake. So they plan to make a cake. He ends up picking up a Lotto Max ticket and goes on to win $55 million. So the Alberta resident told his parents to quit their jobs. He gave some money to his brother and some friends, told his girlfriend, you can buy whatever car you want. It's pretty cool. Next time you're craving cake, buy a lotto ticket as well. Jaya Singh is a retail, or I guess was a retail worker in Windsor, who was living with his family and was already celebrating his daughter's graduation from university when he found out he had won $35 million in the June 6th Lotto Max draw. So he paid for his daughter's education and at that point had planned to buy a new home. I, I'm not sure if he's still working or not. Marie McCarthy from New Waterford, Nova Scotia, won $31 million in the Lotto Max jackpot on her 83rd birthday thanks to a lucky ticket that was given to her as a birthday gift by her grandson. She planned to pay off the mortgages of her nieces and nephews. And yeah, with $31 million, she also wanted to buy a vintage Cadillac. You go, Marie. That's an awesome buy. However, and all of those are fantastic. You know, whether it's Noel Patricio winning $68 million and still wanting to work in housekeeping, Juliet Lamour turning 18, buying her first ever lottery ticket, winning $48 million. Aaron's girlfriend craving cake, so he ends up winning 55 mil. My favorite lottery story, however, comes from Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia, where Bertram and Helen Drover, they didn't strike it rich, 
They only, only, they won $100,000. But they did so a year after facing eviction. In a province struggling with homelessness, Bertram and Helen Drover felt the panic of being renovicted last year. We didn't know where we were going to go. We had, we had no three idea. weeks, and you think, well, am I going to have to pitch a tent? And then you think, oh my God, where do I go? What do I do? When they found this last minute rental, it was a big relief. A year later, someone ahead of them in line at the drive through paid for their coffees one night. They parked to drink them across from a nearby tent encampment and felt a wave of inspiration. And I said to Helen, Helen, you know, if we ever want any amount of money, I think I would like to do something for these folks. Call it fate or good luck, but they say something special happened when they bought a lottery ticket that very same night. And she actually got a little bit extra for yeah, the ticket because she had a winner $2. of $2 in her hand anyway, yeah. so she went even bigger than normal. <laughs> they played the Atlantic tag and won, the ticket upgrade earning them $100,000. Of course, that took my breath away. So they've helped family, paid off their own bills, put away for retirement. How you doing? Good, how are you? And they tell us they used some of their winnings to buy small propane tanks to keep residents at that same encampment warm this winter. Maybe somebody else will hear it. Somebody else will want to chip in. You don't know where this, you know, that happens to people in a, in a minute, in a year, in a week. Anything is possible. So I just think that they need help. Sharing good fortune with strangers, they say, has felt better than getting the good fortune itself. Heidi Petrochik, Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia. That is an awesome story. Although I think as, as great as they all are, I think they all pale in comparison to the one that never happened. You remember the $70 million Lotto Max ticket that went unclaimed and expired back in June a year after it was purchased in Scarborough. It remains the largest unclaimed lotto ticket in Canadian history. And I'm sure the people who have probably forgotten about that they even bought the lottery ticket, but would be kicking themselves if they realized that they were the individual or the family, whatever, that bought that ticket. Ouch. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.